Good morning. I say good morning. There you go. All right. I am going to um, get rolling here. As uh, John said, my name is Larry Walker. I cry my eyes out usually at baptisms. I can't believe I'm not bawling right now. <sighs> Keep it together. Um, uh, so my name is Larry Walker. I am the director of neighborhood outreach for this church. Welcome. If I've not met you, I'd love to meet you after the service. Um, as John said, we're in a series preaching through justice and God's justice. And uh, the other night I was putting my six-year-old to bed, and we have sort of this routine every night. We read a couple books, and then we turn the lights off, and we lay in the dark, and we talk for a few minutes. And uh, sometimes we play the harmonica as well. Uh, neither one of us are that good. Um, but he was telling me he was nervous about a school recital this coming week. He has to sing. Uh, his class sings in front of the school and the parents. And I was trying to relate to the six-year-old. Not a lot of 38-year-old -year man and a six-year-old have in common. Uh, but I was like, hey, I'm, I'm preaching on Sunday, and I'm nervous too. I get nervous in front of crowds. And he, like, my son sucks his thumb, so he, like, took his thumb out, and he's like, so you're, you're nervous? I'm like, yeah, buddy. And uh, he's like, you're looking forward to being done? And I was like, well, you know, more like looking forward to, like, getting it going. He's like, but you're looking forward to being done. That way you know that no one is mad at you for something you said. And uh, I was like, what are you, a psychologist now? Go to bed. Um, <laughs> The topic of justice is one that, like, it's a tough topic. You know, there's arguments all around us about it. Um, it has always been that way. I was reminded recently uh, of the story of Socrates. The, que the question that got him executed uh, was him walking around asking the question, what is justice? So it's always been like that. Cancel culture is not that bad uh, compared to that. So it's a touchy subject, but... It's an important one to talk about, and if you would, stand with me, and we're going to read God's word this morning. So, all right, Deuteronomy 15, uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 18. This is God's word. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release, and this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, you, your hand shall release it. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you, as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers shall become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh day, seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. 
Verse 12, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired worker he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. The word of the Lord. So... Why we're talking about this is because there is, there is a right way to view justice, and there's a wrong way to view it. Um, and this season, we look forward to the coming of the king who will bring justice. So saying that there's a right way and a wrong way isn't arrogance. It's recognizing that um, all justice and righteousness that we long for stems from the character of who God is. And looking to the text for an understanding of how that plays out is really important in this fallen world. So in this text, we're going to walk through... Um, we are watching how God wants us to view all of the world through the lens of his deliverance of us, his people, the promises he has made us, and our constant pull that we feel to walk in the kingdom of this world and not in the kingdom of God. There are always two kingdoms at play. There's a kingdom of God and his righteousness and justice and, and the call we feel, the pull of this world. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going here. There's often sort of a criticism of Old Testament laws and this sort of view of them as kind of antiquated and maybe uh, out of touch and uh, maybe even outright backward. Um, I'm going to argue that they are good news to the poor. It's really important that they're good news to the poor and they're in many ways a remedy for the ills of this world. There are, of course, laws laid out that bring peace to that particular cultural context that don't directly apply to us today. We're not going to nail through someone's ear, you know. Um, but more importantly for us, we get a real glimpse into the heart of God and what he hopes for us and hopes for his people in this world that does have a direct application for us today, I believe. So first things first, the poor in this text, who are they? They're people who have fallen on hard times, um, most likely due to their lack of a good crop. This is an agrarian culture. Most people here are farmers. And so what it would mean to fall on hard times would mean like your farm did really poorly that year. And now you don't have, have enough resources to buy new grain and to live off of. And so for you to make it another year, you need to take out a loan. Um, and you have to put something up as a collateral. You can put your land up, or you can put yourself up eventually. Um, to get a loan, maybe for $1,000, essentially, you would need to put $1,000 worth of land. Um, and at the end of that seven years, there's, I'm learning, I learned as of Friday, there's some debate on this. Uh, it's complicated. There's more expounded on this in Leviticus 25, but um, you would either at the end of that seven years get your land back, or you would get the debt paid off. It's, it's kind of unclear which one it is. Um, there's different views. Uh, the land is rightfully yours. It's your inheritance from the Lord. So the debt could still stand, but then the collateral held over your head would be gone, or the opposite. So either way, at th what we're talking about is a debt that's itself being forgiven or the collateral held over your return, meaning you've got no leverage. They've got no leverage to get that from you anymore. Either way, why would God do this? Why would God set up a system 
where you were required to give a loan to your neighbor in need, but you were not going to have a means of getting that money back in full, almost certainly. It seems like a bad business plan, right? Well, there's a few things I think we can learn about God and what he wants for us in this text. So one, I, I really think in the text you see that God wants us to see ourselves in our neighbor. If among you, it says, one of your brothers should become poor in any of the towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. This could happen to you. This law is given to everybody in any year. Your, your life could fall apart. Or me. So let's set up a system of lifting one another up and seeing that when my brother struggles, it's my responsibility. When I struggle, it's my brother's responsibility. It's as though I were struggling myself. It's supposed to be a community that pays close attention to how one another are doing and sees that at any moment one of us may really take a hard stumble in life. God's laws are complicated. You know, the more I dove into this, the more I got into the weeds and how confusing it was of like, wait, so year of Jubilee, every seven, there's seven years of seven. Um, but then I was reminded of Matthew 7, 7, 12. Um, it says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So if you get really confused about, hey, what are the rules? What are we saying here? Just remember, the Old Testament laws and the prophets are summed up as whatever you would have done to you, do to others. Any one of, this, of, of us in this room are only a few degrees of separation, I really believe this, from living the same life as someone who's at K&A right now struggling with homelessness and addiction. Do you know and believe that? Have you ever done the math of how many bridges it would take for you to be in that situation? It's less than you think. Um, so when you see someone struggling, understand that you're just like a few degrees from that yourself. And we have a responsibility to lift them up. So in the text, what got this person into a bad situation was most likely a bad crop year. Um, so you could be saying, though, wait a minute, Larry, you can really screw your life up, right? Um, and you can take advantage of people. We can make bad decisions, right? My family that I come from, we lost our house due to gambling, right? You can make bad decisions. And you could be in a tough spot because of what you've done. We should be very cautious in who we help and how we lend because people could take advantage of us. To that I say, um, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. The seventh year, saying in your heart, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and you look grudgingly upon your brother. And you give him nothing, and he cry against you, and you be guilty of sin. So you shall give freely. It's interesting because in this text, a lack of generosity is described as wickedness and sin, which is really different than the culture around us. And that's the, the reason why as the king we serve and the kingdom that we belong to turns this world and its values upside down. The economic rules and systems that play in the kingdom of God aren't about making money and getting ahead or maximizing profits and efficiency. They're about being reminded that you were delivered by God and you are a charity case and I am a charity case. As John Alexander said, John said this in a sermon a few years ago. Uh, he said, we are all simply beggars that found the bread. I know he probably got that quote from somebody else, but I heard it from him. So in light of all this, we often ask the question, you know, should we give? Can we afford to give? Um, and I really think the question is, should be phrased more, can we afford not to give? By not being open-handed and generous, we deny our own need for salvation and our own deliverance in a way. So beware of a judgmental attitude in your hearts towards your neighbor, your brothers, your sisters, because there is no Christ in it. 
So why would God create a system like this? Because you will need reminded of your own deliverance over and over and over. Worst case scenario, you are wildly generous to someone who doesn't deserve it. Does that sound familiar? So why else? Why would God do this? This is my favorite point, though. Because God desires justice to not be a subject that just philosophers and bloggers and pundits think about. Justice isn't something that we wait on the system of this world to get right. The person you owe justice to is your neighbor. It is your brother. It is your sister. It is someone close to you. Someone sitting in the pew with you. You share a wall and a block and a zip code with them. And it also costs you. The picture wouldn't be complete if it didn't cost you. Our deliverance cost something, didn't it? That's what we're reminded of. And it doesn't cost us just like an I voted sticker or a social media post. It like cost us. We were supposed to give what they have. So how we view money and resources that God gives us isn't driven by personal security and storing up in this life or building our own kingdom. We are people who have been delivered. Our inheritance is secured and our debt is paid through the work of Christ. And when this kingdom of God comes, our citizenship and blessing is secured by the work of Christ. In this text, they and we are called to literally live in a cycle of remembrance. Every seven years, we're supposed to remember we were delivered. We were delivered. Um, what God has done for them and use their resources in such a way that it mirrors that work up close. Right here. In front of their neighbors and the people outside and inside that community. In the same way, we're called to live in response to the grace that we've received in Christ and use our resources in such a way that it reminds us of the world and the world of the work that Jesus has done. Justice is, is up close. It's right here. So verses 12 through 18. I'm just going to go back and read it one more time. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not leave, let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take in all and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard, hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired worker he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. So side note, when you see the word slavery, uh, resist the urge to import what that means in our culture, um, in our history. This is not like a race-based chattel slavery. This is more of an indentured servitude um, with a light at the end of the tun tunnel where someone is working off a debt. They made a choice. Um, it's the same principle at play in this text as in the previous ones, except for dealing with land and the releasing of collateral debt or debt, you're releasing an actual person. So why would God call you to that? Another thing that hurts you financially, because they were once slaves, right? Um, in this passage, they are called to treat these indentured servants in such a way that the servant may want to stay. And that if the servant wants to leave after the time has been served, they send them off set up for a fruitful future. It isn't just about giving stuff away, though. It is about remembering and, remem and mirroring your own deliverance from slavery and drawing that person into community in such a way that they are now like one of the family. That is justice. Do you remember that you were once slaves to your sin and that you have been set free by the work of Christ? 
this should be the lens through which we interact with those in need, see ourselves in this world, and all matters of justice. If we think about justice without acknowledging the forgiveness of sins of the victim and the perpetrator, the adoption as sons and daughters, all people as image bearers of a holy God and the riches of his grace, if we look at justice without thinking through those things, then I ask you, which kingdom are we trying to advance? And which kingdom are we a part of? How do we share the blessing that we've experienced with others? The blessing of being rehumanized in a dehumanizing world. We, the people of God, are called to be ambassadors that rehumanize people. So, wrapping it up. There's a quote that I love by a Jesuit priest named Greg Boyle. Um, he runs the largest gang intervention uh, organization in the world called Homeboy Industries in Compton, California, and has helped over 86,000 gang members and written three really good books. Um, this guy really gets what it means to love people, I believe. And he, he's not ignorant of causes of justice. So there's this quote I love by him um, that sums up the heart of Christ with regards to justice. He says, Jesus was not a man for others. He was one with others. And there's a world of difference in that. Jesus didn't seek the rights of lepers. He touched the leper even before he got around to curing him. He didn't champion the cause of the outcast. He was the outcast. He didn't fight for improved conditions for the prisoner. He simply said, I was in prison. The strategy of Jesus is not centered in taking the right stand on issues, but rather in standing in the right place. I'm going to say that again. The strategy of Jesus is not centered in taking the right stand on issues, but rather in standing in the right place with the outcast and those relegated to the margins. He'll often talk about how a good community is a, is a circle of kinship, he calls it, where we see ourselves as one with others, and how our job is to go to the margins over and over and over until you continue to push the margins until there are no more margins. Um, I have a story from my own life. Victor helped me write this sermon. Um, so if there's any good in it, you can give him credit for it. Um, but he encouraged me to tell the story. It's something we were talking about. Uh, it's something I, it's a story that, uh, from my own life that I think through a lot uh, with regards to how we serve and help one another and the manner in which we do it. Um, a lot of you know my background, but a lot of you don't. So um, there was a time 20 years ago now, which is weird to say, uh, when I was a homeless teen teenager living in a light blue 1987 Pontiac Sundance uh, with an engine that regularly caught fire. Uh, and I would, uh, it was funny, you can laugh. Um, I would keep like gallons of water in the back seat, and I was also a pizza delivery guy, so uh, my car was my house, was my car, you know. Um, there was a church that I was attending called Chicago Corner Christian Church um, that found out about my circumstances. And they opened the doors of the church to me, and they let me live in the church. I lived, I actually slept like behind the baptismal pool on like this foam mat, and they let me live there for almost a year. And they stocked the kitchen with uh, like canned goods for me. And uh, it was really generous. And uh, they kept the kitchen stocked with food for me to eat. It was wildly generous, right? And Lord willing, if we ever have a building someday, maybe we'll do the same. Um, but I have this memory of spending a Thanksgiving and a Christmas alone at this church. And uh, I like people. And so I remember being alone at this church for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and I have this terrible memory of sitting in the kitchen, 
on Thanksgiving Day, this is the truth, uh, and eating a can of cherry pie filling, because uh, that was the sort of things that were stocked there. There was not like a cherry pie, there was like cherry pie filling. Uh, and like sitting at the kitchen counter like crying in, the, in this like giant church alone eating a can of cherry pie filling. Still why I don't like cherry pies. Um, this church provided my needs and they made sure I didn't starve or freeze to death through a very cold Midwest winter in Indiana. I'm very grateful to them still. I was grateful then, I'm grateful now. Um, but I also felt like this odd like stiff arming in community, like it was Thanksgiving, you know, and I was alone. It was just sad. And um, shortly after, um, I met a family, Dennis and Kate Judy, who took me in. Um, they were, this is why I say, you know, agree with Greg Boyle, that it's not about where you stand on issues. Uh, her father had been in the Reagan administration, and uh, they were hardcore fundamentalists who made me cut my hair and convinced me that tattoos were wrong, and they both went to Bob Jones University. But when they met a homeless teenager, they took him in. Um, so they met me like one time at a football game, and then they opened their home to me. And uh, they built a bunk bed, and I slept on the top bunk, and their four-year-old son, David, slept on the bottom bunk. And I lived there. They, their only requirement was that I, I dropped out of high school. Their only requirement was that I go back to high school. Um, and so I spent a year over a year living there with them, and I ate dinner with them, and I just like, they taught me how to read the Bible, and they were just, I was just family, you know? I still view them as family. Um, so in my mind, that's the next step that a church can take. Um, they lived out their adoption by God in front of me. It was just so real and tangible, and I'll never be the same because of it. Dang it, Victor, this is why I didn't want to do this. I'm not crying now. Keep it together. All right. This is the way of Christ. The justice of this world that we hear around us thrown around so much divides and separates us into little subgroups and pitted against one another and creates margins and power struggles. Who gets to win all the time, right? But I believe it's clear from Scripture that the justice of God draws in and it binds us to one another, it heals communities, and it creates a oneness between us. And I believe that is our call, Liberty Church. And our hope, really, with things like the Advent Drive or tutoring, uh, our hope with a nonprofit that we're trying to start, um, our hope with things like the food pantry or the care team is not simply about trying to fix social problems or give money away or get tax write-offs, but to draw people into the kingdom of God, to lift up our neighbors as we have been lifted up and to, have, and to like, be in a situation where they could lift us up too to share the blessings with them that we have received in Christ, for them to taste and see that God is good, and for us to become one with them. This is God's justice. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.